You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Kaita Johnson. Kaita is a product manager at Google and the founder of PM Wild Black, a platform designed to make product management careers more accessible to the Black community. A Minnesota native, Kaita knew by age five that he wanted to be an engineer. By middle school, he was already building computers. By his own admission, Kaita grew up with a level of privilege and access that helped shape his career aspirations. As the son of a white physics professor and Ugandan registered nurse, he always identified with both sides of his heritage. But it wasn't until a racist encounter in undergrad that he came into his identity as a Black man. After a three-year stint at Texas Instruments, Kaita completed his MBA at Stanford. Graduating from one of the most elite business schools in the country opened doors naturally, and Kaita began the next phase of his career at Google. He acknowledges that, quote, product management is like Soho House. Even if you know about it, good luck getting in. But Kaita is tired of seeing the good old boy network play out in a field he's passionate about, and he's working to be a part of the solution. So here's his story. Please enjoy. Kaita, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well as well. I feel like you you have this like West Coast glow happening. <laughs> I feel like you might be more relaxed and um, experiencing better, better weather than we are here on the East Coast. It is finally hot, but it's also very humid. Yeah, that's that's the great thing about being over here. It's very dry. Yeah. Um, I went surfing also the other day, probably like Friday and Saturday. So definitely feeling relaxed. <laughs> oh, you're a West Coaster for real. You're actually surfing. Yeah, I'm really trying to assimilate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we have to talk about whether you whether you picked that up there since you've been on the West Coast or it was something that you'd always been interested in. Because you don't hear no, many yeah. folks who look like us say that they surf. Right, right. No, actually, I first learned how to surf in Florida and I was surfing in the summers and when I was in New York. Nice. So I was in New York for like two and a half years, almost three years. And every summer we'd go out to Long Beach and surf out there and then go to the food trucks over at Long Beach, if you know where that is. Yeah, so you're legit. Like you, you've been doing this for real. Uh, ish. I mean, people that <laughs> certainly did it like since they were kids. But <laughs> right, fascinating. That's well, anyway, yeah. let's jump into it. Who is Kaita Johnson? Yeah. So, who is Kaita Johnson? It's such an interesting question because um, usually you're not you're not talking like this, right? At your company, you're usually talking about, oh, well, this is what the product is, and here's my pitch, right? Um, but for me, so I guess I'm Ugandan American. Um, I'm a black man in America. I'm a product manager. Like I said earlier, I surf. Um, I build communities, right? Um, as evidenced by my work on PML Black and the Instagram community Black.Surfers. And I think that's partially because I go by a definition of success, uh, de- definition of success that's uh, defined as the achievements of those around me. I'm also a fiance and future life partner to an amazing woman. And I'm an alpha, of course, and a future policymaker at the local level. So that's I, who Kaita Johnson is. Yeah. So I like I like the confidence with which you said a lot of those things. That's that's great. It feels like a laser like focus, not only on what you have going on today, but what you aspire to in the future. So that that's always impressive. So let's talk about uh I want to start with you being Ugandan American because interestingly, you grew up in Minnesota, right? So talk to me about your family background and upbringing. Yeah, so my mom's Ugandan. She came here when she was 18 years old first started in the East Coast and then moved her way uh, to the Midwest. And my dad is white. He's half Swedish, half Finnish. And his parents grew up in the northern part of Minnesota and then 
their parents uh, came from Sweden and Finland uh, by way of Ellis Island. And so they actually met when one of my aunts was attending my father's college that he was teaching at. And my mom was the older, the older sister, and they all went to the ball. And I guess my dad saw my mom and he was like, hello, <laughs> in, in multiple ways, right? <laughs> and so they kind of hit it off there. Um, so grew up biracial, but it's a, everybody has different types of identities, right? But um, for me, it was interesting because I was biracial, but biracial with a parent that was not of this country originally. And so that's different than maybe people who have both grown up in the United States, right? So you're kind of dealing with a situation where my mom is kind of learning about African-American issues kind of at the same time as my dad is um, because she's going through some of the uh, tribulations of other black people at the same time and, and realizing, wait a second, this society is, is unjust and there's inequities here, right? Um, and so growing up, it was interesting because, um, you know, I grew up thinking, hey, I'm Ugandan and I'm white. I wasn't even really internalizing the concept of myself being a black man until college. I was really like, hey, I'm this guy who's African and white and I'm biracial. Uh, and that was really my identity for the longest. Um, and so, you know, I kind of got the talk about police, but I always kind of separated myself. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm this African kid. Uh, and it wasn't until I had some like really intense, uh, like racist incidents that occurred in college where I was like, wait a second. Something about this is not <laughs> correct. Something about this is not accurate. Um, and so, yeah. So it's very interesting kind of growing up with that perspective where you have a white man who, though he definitely sees his, his boy as a black boy, right? He's not necessarily um, thinking about, you know, how am I going to make, how am I going to be woke? How am I going to make sure that my kids are woke, right? My mom is African, so not thinking about necessarily like the African-American aspect of what my life will be like uh, or the struggles of those around me. Um, so it's pretty interesting that way. And what I find interesting about your story is you went to school in state, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, so you hear these stories and, and people say, oh, you know, I went to Morehouse or some other HBCU and that's where I got woke. Right. And, and really was able to culturally identify as black. But for you, it's education in a different way and that experiencing um, racist incidents, right, that that kind of open your eyes to that. Can you talk about a little bit what occurred while you were in college? Yeah, yeah. So when I first got to, so backing up a little bit. So in high school, um, I went to one of the top public high schools in Minnesota. And so, again, because of systemic racism, that area also tended to be very white and Asian, uh, particularly Chinese. So a lot of my friends were white and Chinese. And so when I came to college, those are the kind of people that I associated with initially. Um, basically, like white people and Asian people, uh, South Asian as well as East Asian. And probably, Halfway into my sophomore year, uh, I went down to Oklahoma for an Oklahoma, an OU Texas Tech game, um, which if any of your listeners know, it's like a very intense game, um, a lot of a lot of drama. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of passions are heated. And so we were there volunteering. And as we were walking back after the game, I was walking with a few of my uh, other black friends, actually. Uh, they were Somali. And I remember walking down the street. It's dark. But for me, I was, I'd never been in Oklahoma. I didn't really consider, I wasn't thinking this is the South. Let me be on high alert. I was just thinking, Hey, I'm in Oklahoma with my buddies. This is fun. This is a new place. And I just remember this guy rolling down the window and he said, go back where you came from, you N word. And he had another friend in his car and they were kind of jeering at me and smiling, like, you know, sneering and kind of being like, yes, this is exactly what I would want to say as well. 
And I was just stunned. Um, I had never been called the N word before. I've been told um, kind of the more covert, subtle, racist uh, comments like, oh, you're, you talk white or uh, you're not black, you're white, you know, things like that. But this was like the first very overt in your face, you are lesser comment. And I just froze and I remember my blood just boiling. And I was, I thought I found myself like starting to walk towards the car. And one of my small friends pulled my arm and he said, look around you right now, like stop. And I took a look around and all the other cars were filled with these white guys. One guy actually had already started opening his car door, like ready in case I did anything. And in that moment, I just felt really small. I felt uh, helpless and it really like shook me to my core uh, in a way that I didn't realize would happen. So um, after that, you know, I always, I always tell the story and I, I can't really recall like what the next like month was, but it was really a, a period of intense transformation for me. I think I started reading a lot, um, understanding a little bit about what it's like to be like black in America, because again, I, I didn't really associate myself as that. I wasn't like, I'm a black man in America. Um, and so really starting to take that, that step and step backwards and really assessing my situation. Um, I started to realize a bunch of things. I started going to more black student union events. Um, I started, uh, actually starting to read articles about different, different topics that I'd never really read about before. I took like my first Afro-American studies course. Um, and so, and then eventually, you know, it actually ended up leading me to alpha, but, um, we can talk about that later, I guess. Yeah, definitely. You know, now understanding more about your backstory and seeing who you are today, I definitely have curiosity about how you ended up as an alpha for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I was but a late any, bloomer, late bloomer alpha. <laughs> yeah, but but in any event, it's it's interesting because you know there's a heightened focus on these types of incidents, right? And everybody is whipping out a cell phone and posting videos online. And I talk to my white friends, and they're like, "I just I can't believe this is happening." And I'm like, "It's been happening. It's not new." Now though, there's a heightened focus on it, and you're seeing more video, you're seeing more news articles. But like almost every black person I talk to has some story they can tell you, right? Of some racially charged encounter, and if if it's not that. It's a racist microaggression. And we all have several of those stories, right? The more covert um, acts, but this is not new. And, and the, you know, the tossing around of the N-word like that. I don't know if people think it's like there's some resurgence that has happened in the last few months, given where we are as a country. And I'm like, no, bro, like that, that has been going on, you know, for, I didn't, the N-word has never had a year off. Like right. that, 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 <laughs> is, that on, is happening. Always, always, always no on. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested. I'm interested in and curious about um, you coming into your own in this way in, in school, and then coming home, right? Because there's always these incidents where like kids go to school and they really come into themselves, and they come home right. and they're having this dialogue with their parents, and the parents are like, "Who are you right now?" Right. Uh, did you did you have open conversations with your parents, particularly growing up in a biracial home, about what not only what you were experiencing, but what your how your eyes were being opened while you were in college? Yeah, I think uh, it was a gradual shift for me. And I think it was also a gradual shift for my parents. Like looking back, I, I, I guess also taking a step backwards. So for me, I'm not the person who talks to their parents like every day. And so we don't have that relationship where I'm constantly letting them know everything that's happening in my life. So I think I probably shared in like a random visit or maybe if I went home for a break or something and shared what happened. And I think they expressed concern for what happened. and. Um, they were like, can't believe this happened to you. Like, you know, this is like being black in America. Um, 
but we didn't really have some of those like more intense race-based conversations until I think there were, and again, like talking about no days off for the N-word, no days off for police brutality in those incidents. But I think there was an incident that happened uh, around 2011, 2012, where then we had a pretty open conversation that started really triggering a lot of things. And again, I think my Afro-American studies class, um, uh, Keith Mays actually at the U of M, he taught it. I think it really opened my eyes because I didn't, I didn't get the full American history um, growing up in high school. And I think about AP US history that I took and definitely didn't cover a lot of the topics that were covered there. And I'm actually reading a, what is it? A people's history of the United States right now. That's even way, way more eye-opening. Um, but uh, so I didn't really have that knowledge, but I think when there was that incident back in 2011, that's when we really started to have the conversation. But um, I think it was gradual for my parents as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what I also, um, which I think also causes a lot of dialogue is people who are biracial and how they self-identify, right? And I think there is um, a general disdain or at least at minimum dissatisfaction amongst the Black community when someone is biracial but does not identify as Black, right? right. Yeah. Um, and, and what do you think is the psychology around that when someone does have a Black parent but is unwilling to identify in that way? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think, frankly, I, I mean, based off my personal experience, so N of one, but I think it's based on how you're raised. Um, for me, the Black identity was more so a conversation around safety. So, hey, because people will, will look at you and say you're Black, they will do certain things to you, right? Like a police officer might pull you over, so you need to be really safe when you're driving, things like that. But it wasn't this thing that you're like celebrating. It's not like I was celebrating in the home. It's not like I was celebrating being black. It was like, hey, because you're black here, there's like danger <laughs> because mm. because of just your skin color. But the things that were being celebrated were my Ugandan heritage, my Swedish and Finnish heritage. Those are the things that were kind of getting celebrated in the home. Mm-hmm. So if I think about when people think about identity, I think identity needs to come with the positive aspects of that identity, right? Um, no one's going to claim something that they view as uh, potentially like negative to them, right? If their mm-hmm. the concept of that thing is this is a negative thing, they're probably not going to call it out um, versus it's like, hey, this thing that I have lots of positive sentiment and positive vibes around, I'm going to always call that out. And so I feel like that's also probably one element of it. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a sense of you know, like I, I didn't know about Juneteenth until college, for example. So you're just not in that community to understand the positive elements of it. I'm just hearing, hey, because you're black, you're going to deal with these things. And it's it was just tough versus here's our Ugandan culture. Let's go back home. Oh, my gosh, it's amazing. Look at all the culture, you know. Right. Absolutely. Parallel experience in the black community. And I don't think we talk enough about that divide between uh, the diaspora and Black Americans, right? So people who are either first generation, you know, American or who've, who've immigrated here um, from the West Indies or, you know, from from Africa, you know, the continent of Africa and how they feel and how they view us, right? And I think sometimes there is that differentiator where they're like, oh no, we're not like you, right? You know, we're yeah. different until you have those experiences. Here. Right. It's like, no, no, like they see us all as just Black. Um, but I also... Um, 
I'm I'm happy that with the things that have happened and continue to happen, it's creating more dialogue because I think it is a more nuanced conversation. Um, and there are opportunities for us to find more commonality than the ways in which we're different. And and I think I don't fall into the camp of you don't identify as black, right? Like, and, and throwing those people away because I know we've all been socialized differently. Now, what I will say is, okay, you cannot identify as black today, but at some point it's going to slap you in the face, right? And you're going to have to face that. So, um, so I think it requires patience and open-mindedness on, on each side, but I'm, I'm happy that there's, there's dialogue and the difficult conversations uh, are happening uh, with regard to that. But shifting back to your personal story. Um, so outside of the coming into your identity as a black man in college, where were you at that point in terms of professional aspirations? Uh, yeah, so... I think I grew up pretty privileged, um, grew up in a middle-class place that also had access to a fantastic educational system. My dad was a physics professor and my mom was a registered nurse and both valued education, both had the time to be at home with me and teach um, in the summers in addition to my core coursework. So my mom actually told me, you know, because you always hear stories, people say, oh, when you were a kid, you used to say you wanted to be an astronaut or something. Um, when I was five years old, I guess I said, I want to be an engineer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny on its surface, but then if you think about it, it's like, wow, how is it that at five years old, I was able to identify this career that actually doesn't feel so like, it's not going to be a children's book or not the children's book that most people are reading. Right. So how, the fact that I'm even able to be like, yeah, I want that thing really bad. <laughs> um, at that age is, is pretty interesting. And, um, we can have a conversation about that whole conversation about that. But, um, yeah, so from the beginning, early age, I wanted to be an engineer. Um, so where'd that come from though? So I don't think, so I, short answer is I think it came from my dad. Um, I think my mom wanted me to be a doctor, <laughs> but, uh, I think I was attending even at that age again, like I was attending lectures on physics and engineering and astronomy at a very early age. Cause I think my dad, you know, my dad was a physics professor at the time. And basically he brought me to, I think like all the seminars he went to. So I was just constantly surrounded <laughs> with science the entire time. Um, and then I think uh, he also would introduce me to some of his colleagues at the college, um, people that had done engineering previously and things like that. So I think it was, it was only a matter of time. <laughs> right. So engineering can mean a lot of different things, um, you know, in, in terms of sort of a specialty. But you go, you go to college and you end up focusing on electrical engineering. Is that correct? That's right. OK. Yeah. So what drew you to that specifically? Um, beyond wanting to be an engineer, it was actually a perceived sense of job security. Mm-hmm. So if we backtrack a few years in high school, I was really into coding. I was making apps, making websites. I started uh, learning how to hack. I was like really into coding and I would build computers for people also. I built my first computer in middle school, I think. Again, access and privilege. Um, I was building computers at that age. And in my head, I thought, well, I wanna be a computer engineer because I like making computers. I like seeing what makes them tick. I like to code. So this seems like the right path for me. And I think that was 2005 or so where I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to do computer engineering four years later, right? I was already thinking, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And I think when I told my dad, he said, oh, that's interesting. Um, let's take a walk around the neighborhood. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I can't remember if it was the same day or but I do remember this walk. <laughs> and he took me around the neighborhood and he pointed out several houses and he's like, 
do you know the guy that lives there? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I see him around all the time. He's like, yeah, you see him around all the time, right? And I said, oh, yeah, he's really nice. Uh, I always see him on the lawn. And he said, well, he got laid off uh, from the dot-com bust. And I was like, oh, wow. He's like, do you know what his, uh, you know what his job was? <laughs> I, was like, I had no idea. He's like, computer engineering. <laughs> and then he went to the next house. There was like a, maybe like three houses within a half mile uh, with guys that had been computer engineers that got laid off during the mm-hmm. dot-com boom bust um so after that conversation he said hey you know it's interesting to look back at this also you're like it's very obviously it's stuck out of my mind um and also there were a bunch of articles at the time it's crazy to think about this now but literally back then there were articles that were saying uh software engineers are going to be uh a thing of the past because ai is going to code everything for us like i remember i remember literally reading articles like that and thinking oh my gosh you know, computer engineering, software engineering, that's just not going to be a thing in the future. Clearly not the case. <laughs> um, so for all those reasons, I was like, well, with electrical engineering, I can still do uh, a bunch of the computer engineering aspects. I can still code. It'll be more embedded software code, but um, I'll still be able to do that, but also have this perceived sense of job security. So that's what led me to electrical. Got it. So, I mean, hearing that now... If you remember the dot-com bust, I can uh, understand the trepidation, right? And I've talked to people who are a little bit older than us and, like, you know, were in their career at that time. And they tell these crazy stories of, like, getting the job of their dreams weeks before it all blew up. Oh, my gosh. And literally being, like, walked out the door, like, sorry, we don't even have any severance. Like, it's just over. Um, So I do understand the trepidation. But now in hindsight, it's like, you can't help but chuckle that that conversation (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, had with you. Got burned, right? Right, exactly, exactly. So I I definitely understand where your dad, you know, was coming from, uh, for sure. But you ended up in in sales, though. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So um, I did sales engineering for like three years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what did that entail? Yeah. So I was a semiconductor sales engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, So I worked for Texas Instruments. So not the calculators, uh, but the other part of the business. So mm-hmm. I think like 96% of their business is these little chips that go into laptops, that go into your microphone, that go into your phone. And I was responsible for selling those chips to hardware companies, hardware startups in New York City. So no one at TI had been in New York at the time, New York City specifically. So I landed there and they were basically like, go figure this out go make us some money. We see a, there's a lot of startup movement here, Silicon Alley, et cetera. Go make something happen. So I just combed the city, basically. I was going to all the meetups, going on all the websites, meeting with people, uh, figuring out uh, what startups were out there, who was doing well, who had potential, and figuring out what actually had the best in terms of... Because TI has a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of ammunition, right? Once we say, hey, we want to go after these clients, we can provide them a lot of support. We can give them uh, better pricing, et cetera, if we think they're going to have higher volumes. And so I was responsible for figuring out um, who we should be allocating more of our resources to and then figuring out for the long tail of people that are either uh, still small and continuing to grow, but slowly, or maybe like newcomers that I might not uh, fully know their potential just yet, figuring out that long tail support model. Uh, so that's what I was doing in New York. but. Yeah, so it was, it was interesting because the day-to-day was something that would be pretty difficult for someone to do without an engineering background. But it was awesome because it leveraged my communication skills and leadership skills that I had learned during my time in undergrad 
like being president of Nesby and Alpha and BSU, Black Student Union, um, all those experiences kind of prime me for. So uh, like in the morning, like I'll give you an example of a day. So also, again, this is like a work from home role. So it's a kind of mm-hmm. interesting uh, full circle. Now I feel like I'm working from home all the time. Like, oh, OK, it's back to normal, <laughs> back to the back to the past. Um, but it's, you know, you wake up at seven, you're handling some emails, you have a 9 a.m. meeting and in the meeting, they're discussing this new product that they're thinking about creating. And like, I would go to the whiteboard and basically mock out, okay, here's what I think the architecture might look like. Here's what I think you guys need to go investigate. Um, here are the solutions that we support here, the solutions we don't support. Here's what I think the overall cost to you would be just for the materials, but you might have to go investigate X, Y, and Z. And then the next meeting I might go to is a call with the founder of a company that I've been working with. And they're trying to negotiate better pricing because they're getting closer to launch. And they're like, we need to increase our profit margins. Everyone always wants to increase it, uh, improve their margins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so having those conversations with uh, suppliers and uh, or the vendor managers of that company. Um, and then you might have a lunch with uh, your distribution partner where because TI doesn't necessarily ship chips directly to customer uh, factory sites. We at least TI, or not we anymore, but TI used to send uh, most of the chips to uh, distribution companies who would then send it to companies, uh, end companies. And so you might have a conversation with your partner about, hey, what are the, what's the upcoming business for the quarter looking like? Um, what kind of opportunities are we seeing in our highest potential accounts? What new accounts are you seeing that I'm not seeing? Because sometimes people would, it's kind of like a go-to-market strategy, right? Figuring out uh, how you're going to learn about new companies. It could be from your own presence. So I like I had like a Twitter account that I I would get inbounds from. Um, I would host meetups. Uh, I also had like this just this public email people could reach out to me on. Uh, but also distribution, those partners were getting similar inbounds, and sometimes it made sense for them to loop us in because we had, again we had more support that was specific to TI product. So uh, and then maybe in the afternoon, yeah, uh, there'd be similar kinds of conversations. What I find interesting about this is. You know, when you think about sales, you think about how I think about it in terms of like, okay, you're going to take the sales job and then you're going to go to training for two weeks, right? To figure out how to sell. And then here's your territory and here's this universe of leads that you have. And then you start the process of trying to build relationships. Um, And while that doesn't happen necessarily in the startup world, we're talking about Texas Instruments, which is this longstanding company. But actually, it sounds like they sort of threw you in in trial by fire as if you worked for a startup. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I wouldn't say that. I would actually say they did, uh, they were much more on the other side of the spectrum where they trained me. So Okay, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would, be, that would be insane. Learning the products and the companies and trying to figure out how to actually be valuable and useful to these startups. I think that would be... Yeah, but just the, the way you framed it, like just go to New York and figure it out. I was like, okay, <laughs> that is different. That is different for, for sure. Okay, Definitely so it bad. sounds like there was a lot more infrastructure there. <laughs> yeah, some people nicknamed TI the training institute. Mm, okay. But yeah, so no, they... they they definitely do a great job. Uh, big, big shout out to TI. <laughs> um, when I first joined TI, I joined their rotation program. Okay. It was a sales and marketing engineering rotation program. And I spent nine months in Dallas and Austin learning the portfolio, learning how to speak to customers about these products, learning the life cycles of uh, design and development of uh, all these different products that we use today, mm-hmm. uh, electronics, right? And so I started off uh, a whole month, basically just shadowing sales guys, sales folks. I did that in Austin. Um, I did, I like helped them a little bit, but 
really I was just uh, shadowing them. Mm-hmm. And then I did three months in a rotation for marketing, um, spent it in battery management solutions. So thinking about battery protectors, battery chargers, uh, things like that, and uh, actually hosted a few webinars um, in those three months. And then I was working in the customer support center um, for three months, which was basically handling phones, figuring out quickly what what answers people needed. And there'd be a variety of different people calling in. There were people calling in that were university students that wanted a free development pack. And then there would be people calling in from aerospace companies saying, why hasn't my sales guy contacted me? And you guys need to help me out with this and pricing for this. And I would be like, okay, I'm going to direct you to not this department. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is above my pay grade. Mm-hmm. But uh, through all of that, I learned the ropes for sure. Um, so when I came to New York, certainly there was some aspects of the sales process I had to learn and also own end to end. But at the same time, I, I knew my way around TI. So well, now that part of the story sounds much more corporate sales in a traditional sense. <laughs> now that we've filled in some of those gaps, let me make sure I give it uh, there too. Right. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you spent a few years there, uh, and then you decide on B school. That's right. Yeah. So, so what drove you uh, to get an MBA? Um, yeah. Short answer is uh, different career, access to a different career. Yeah. So for me in New York, actually backing up. So uh, coming from Minnesota and not being, I was in a privileged spot for sure, raised middle class, but I didn't know about a lot of jobs that are kind of, kind of reserved for like upper echelon people that came from certain upper echelon colleges or just upper echelon institutions. Right. So I had no idea that banking could go beyond um, the teller that you see, you know, in your local bank uh office right (laughs) Right? i was like banking that's like uh you know i deposit my check and (laughs) they tell me how much money's in there that's like that's about it um so i didn't know that even things like uh investment banking were a thing until i would be in new york and i'd go to a bar and i'd see these guys in suits spending thousands and thousands of dollars and i'm like who are these people <laughs> that seem to just have endless amounts of cash flow and they're like oh they're investment bankers and i'm like hmm, okay good to know <laughs> duly noted uh, yep yep and similarly for consulting i had no idea that there was something called like management consulting i knew about uh like uh a consulting with regards to accounting like pwc was around but no mckinsey's came to the university of minnesota no Baines, no BCGs. And I wasn't in the business school, so I wasn't thinking about those things. I was more on the engineering side of things. So I didn't really know about this stuff. Um, and the same thing for product management. Um, I had no idea. And uh, you know, I, I, a lot of times I like to talk about product management uh, as though it's like Soho House mm-hmm. because you, you're not really going to know about it. And even if you do know about it, good luck getting in. Right. Um, and so I didn't know about product management until maybe halfway in my time in New York. And because I was starting to look at the things I was doing at TI, and I was like, this is exciting, but I find that I'm only engaging when it makes sense for TI, yeah. which, is, which makes a lot of sense because I work at TI. So it's when are, the, when are the chip decisions being made, right? Because I have a chip, but so do six other vendors. And so whenever, they're figuring, whenever the engineer is figuring out who should we go with, I'm like very much in that conversation. But as soon as they kind of figure out the design and a lot of the kinks are worked out. My, I'm in my. It's in TI's best interest to for me to move on to the next project or to understand if there's something else going on or if there's a problem on another product that's further down the development path. 
So I didn't really get the end-to-end idea to launching and landing a product uh, experience. And I started to realize, you know, I really want to be able to do that because at some point I want to be able to start my own company and learning that process is going to be really important. And so, you know, during my time in New York, definitely spending a lot of time with a lot of founders and different people at startups. And so, you know, those people are much more risk inclined. So when I said, you know, this is kind of what I'm looking for, I would love to be able to do engineering, but also business and also lead and also sales. They were like, well, duh, you should be (laughs) a founder. You should found your own startup. And I was like, yes, that is totally something I want to do. In the meantime, (laughs) like for me to grow my skills and, you know, is there like a less uh, risky version? Then they said, well, you know, I guess you could be a product manager. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I started to do a little bit of light exploration around what that could mean and quickly realized that in my position at TI, if I wanted to be a product manager, I a product manager, I could go back to Dallas and potentially do product management, but it would be product management for the silicon. And I also wanted to work on the stuff that I was empowering, right? Mm-hmm. I was, at least in that moment, I didn't want to be the enabler technology anymore. I wanted to be the one saying, this is the laptop. This Got is the it. And like bringing that to market, that was that was kind of what I was imagining. And so going back to TI, I wouldn't have had that experience. Um, and so I was like, okay. So then I was looking at product manager roles in New York, and everyone basically said, you either need to have been a PM before, or you need to have your MBA. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, this is pretty clear. So actually, I had applied for management leadership for tomorrow, uh, this like MBA prep program. Program. Um, Actually, highly recommend it. MLT has, I'm just going to do a quick shout out for MLT because it's so amazing. Uh, programs across the life cycle, starting from, I think, even high school or at least like early college, uh, where they do career prep for undergraduate students and you can get into really high paying roles. And I find that this is something that people on the coast know about, but people in the Midwest and the South have no idea about. And so I want to make sure people <laughs> know about these things all the way through MBA prep and even. Uh, as you become like a mid-level executive or director, like figuring out how to get to that C-suite, how to get to the board of directors of a company. So anyways, highly recommend the MLT. And actually, it's funny because talking about the the investment bankers, when I initially, because MLT, you have to apply two years before you plan to go to business school. So it's Mm -hmm. a long time. So I applied when I was maybe like six or nine months into uh, uh, New York. And in my application, I basically was like, yeah, I want to be an investment banker. <laughs> because I was seeing all these guys. I'm like, how is this possible? These people, these are the only people that I feel like are owning property in Manhattan. It's like the only ones. And not and not just owning property. These amazing apartments. Oh, yeah. With like not these cra- property, right? <laughs> yeah. property on that block. Yes, with like these crazy views, like floor to ceiling windows. And oh 25 uh, Broad, have you been there? It's a, it's yes, a I like have. That, right? yeah. <laughs> yes. Unreal. Yeah. And you start to feel like, I thought I was doing okay for myself, no. you know, with my little degree and job. And it's right. like, no, I'm actually poor. <laughs> right. I feel like I have a job, they have a career. <laughs> exactly. That that iBanking world. I remember my experience with that is I remember, you know, so coming from Penn, I knew a ton of people from mm. school who went like straight into finance, right? Yeah. So I had a corporate job, but I was in business analytics, right? So I'm working for Johnson Johnson. They paid me a little premium because I came out from Ivy and I think I'm like really doing it, right? <laughs> and I remember talking to a guy who works at Goldman Sachs. We graduated yeah, the same I already year, know what you're right? Say, yeah. like a finance major. So we're like 22, you know, 23. And he's like, yeah, you know, so he decided he wanted to get out of it, but he was like, I took my bonus and like, I'm, I'm leaving the US. And I was like, wait, 
You're taking a bonus and leaving the U.S. I remember my bonus was like, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. So I was like, how much was your bonus? And he was like, my bonus was over 100K. Mm-hmm. And like my 23-year-old self who thought I was really killing the game was like, okay, well, clearly right. there's a whole other world out there that I don't know about. Right, exactly. And that was exactly my thought. I was like, get to the money. You know, Chamath, uh, this guy used to be a big VP at Facebook. He, he spoke at the GSP and he said, you know what? If you really want to change things in this world, you got to get to the money. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, before I, I heard him talk, that was kind of what I was thinking. I was like, well, I need to do finance. <laughs> right. That really was like, okay, I went about this all wrong. Hindsight yeah. is great. Finance, even though I've supported it as an attorney, is not for me. Uh, right. <laughs> I, will bringing, I will be bringing my children to finance conferences as well. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I just bring them to 25 broad. Maybe we'll see. Just that. Like, <laughs> this could be you. You two right. can have all of this. Um, but what's interesting is I can't say I knew a ton about product management um, in, in terms of like what that means and, and what that looks like. But so you went into MLT thinking, OK, I'm going to be an eye banker. But when did this shift happen where you said, OK, no, this is actually more aligned to what I want? Yeah. My coach kind of like slapped me in the face. Mm-hmm. And said, no, snap out of it. <laughs> you got this like aura of I want money mm-hmm. <laughs> plastered on your forehead. And you need to think about what you're actually passionate about what you're actually have the skill set for also. Um, because while if you have an engineering degree, you can do finance. But uh, my skill set was definitely, I could do, a, I could be a much better product manager, I think, mm-hmm. with my skill set. And so they're like, you know, think about your skill set, what you're passionate about. And I said, okay, you know what? Yeah, I'd, straying away from engineering, like not having any engineering aspect to a role, I think would be saddening for me. Mm-hmm. So um, she kind of centered me a little bit. <laughs> Well, what's interesting about PM, which you allude to on PM While Black, which we're, we're going to get into, is that it is um, very in- insular, right? And you, you talked about it a bit, or calling it Soho House, which still trying to decide whether it's worth uh, trying to get in there. I know, but- I know. Finally, <laughs> I got the networks. Now it's just the question of the money. <laughs> yeah. So that, I, so I'm, I'm veering a little bit, but I've been to Soho House right, yeah. more than once, right? Yeah. So when I was... Uh, this fancy startup entertainment lawyer used to take meetings there all the time because people, you know, prospective clients and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it, just by virtue of being there, people, you have a certain aura. People are like, well, if you're in this space, there's something about you and there's a reason why you deserve to be here. And it, it is great for connections. I say the same thing about the Hamptons. If you've been to a Hamptons party, people just think by virtue of you being able to set foot in the Hamptons, you're legit. Um, yeah. yeah, but so I understand that the exclusivity, you know, aspect of it, but you also brought up um, needing a certain network and connections and, and much of it is legacy of people just having grown up in these elite environments where they have the access. Um, but in your case, you started to build that network in, in at Stanford. Is that true? Uh, and when you say network, you mean like the network of people that were letting me know about product management? or Yeah. So like you had your coach gotcha. at MLT, but like people who had actually been in this space, right? Who gotcha. have like an inside track. It was in the startup world in New York okay. uh, because it's so sad because um, actually when they first told me I was going to move to New York, I was like, no, because <laughs> I had planned to be, I had planned to be in California. Like everything I was doing was geared towards being in California. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's way too many people in New York. But actually when I got there, I, I fell in love with it. Um, yeah. Uh, New York was a great time. And people always think New York, it's like, wow, you know, so diverse. 
and you have people from all over the world that come there. And certainly when you're walking the streets, you know, especially if you go to different boroughs, you'll see radically different people, right? Uh, from radically different places and walks of life. But as soon as you get above the 30th floor of any given office building, the diversity sizzles <laughs> real quick, right? Dissipates, real yes. quick. And so because I was working with these startups, because I was talking to these founders, I was able to be in a lot of those rooms and a lot of those floors and access people and events and opportunities that I, I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, you know, I was going to like Shark Tank watch parties, mm. which was like insane. Like because the startup was on Shark Tank, I was at this like super exclusive watch party where you'd go to a launch party of a company and you can just feel it's like a similar aura, right? You're like, oh, okay, this kind of feels like Soho House. Right. <laughs> like everyone here is someone, you know? Um, and when you get it, like everybody you're getting introduced to, you're like, wow, wow. <laughs> There's no one you're like, mm. <laughs> maybe they thought that of me, but everyone I was talking to, I was like, wow. Gallery openings uh, are like that in New York as well. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> also, how do you know about that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's a similar, similar vibe. So yeah, that's how I that's how I started figuring out what it was, um, and certainly being in business school accelerated that process. Yeah, so let's talk a bit about B school because I've heard um, mixed things. Like some people go and they thrive and they're like at the best time of my life in B school, and others are like it was a lot harder than I anticipated. You know, the group project aspect, dealing with all these personalities, people with varying uh, degrees of professional experience. You know, you have those that go back after ten years. You know, people who have yeah. a couple of years. You have the executive MBA. You know, programs. What was your experience? Yeah, I was much more on the former. Um, for me, it was a blast. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think another aspect of it. So I'm very glad that my majority of my post-undergraduate pre-business school experience was in New York mm-hmm. because it accelerated a lot of things. And a lot of people are there. Really, a lot of people are there. And a lot of people that are doing things are in New York. So like, as soon as I got in, maybe like a sixth of my class that I would matriculate with, they were in New York. Mm -hmm. There were so many people already in New York. So I was already hanging out with my 2B classmates mm, six to nine months before. Mm. So that was like amazing (laughs) because you're already, again, hobnobbing with people that you're you're just amazed by and, and love the work that they're doing and the impact that they're making. So then when I got to school, it felt like, you know, I already kind of knew people. Um, also GSB is just a smaller class it's around 400 people, uh, for each class. And so, uh, and also the nature of the school, people are much more interested in just kind of getting to know who you are, not what you are. And that kind of comes, that's kind of secondary. And so that was awesome for me, just kind of understanding who people are and getting to know people for, um, kind of like their intrinsic qualities and what makes them tick and, uh, what they like to do. And almost like the career thing was kind of a, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And, We'll figure it out, <laughs> which, you know, that's a lot of privilege, right? Versus like, hey, we got to get in here. We got to survive. We got to make sure this happens, right? But, you know, going to, at that time, it was like the number one school. I think everyone was kind of like, we'll make it happen. It's, you know, the companies will come to us and maybe I'll just do a startup. I won't even apply to any companies. You know, that was literally, that was the attitude for a lot of my classmates. Right. Um, so it was just an awesome place to, again, like, I thought I opened my eyes in, in New York, but this school, I was like, whoa, there is this whole other world. Um, you know, you went to UPenn, I'm sure it's similar when you went there. It's just like your eyes are opened and you're like, wow, there's, there's, you know, <laughs> you realize how much a have not you were. 
my god! You I thought y'all were making it, but you weren't making it. Like, like, you were on the wrong track. Yeah. yeah, I can remember like because I I had a circle, so I you know, and this interview is not about me, so I won't get into too much of my story. But you know, I had come to Penn between my junior and senior year, right? So I was there for a program called Lead Leadership Education and Development, which they have for you know, four to five weeks, these top various top universities across the country. So it's really competitive to get into. And a lot of people just inherently end up applying to the school where they did lead, right? So you're there, you're taking management finance classes, you're going to meet these, uh, you know, C-suite, you know, Matt Kench and all, Amex, you know, all these like big time execs. And it's meant to expose you not only to the school, but like corporate America. So I had done that, met this core group of folks from there who are all, you know, diverse candidates. And then ended up coming back to Penn, right? So I interviewed while I was on campus that summer and then at Wharton. And then I, I came back to Penn, right? And I remember, like, <laughs> it wasn't at first because I had this core group that I knew. And they, like, were like me. Just came from, you know, regular old family. Um, unless they were trying to pretend like they weren't. But then I, I will never forget, like, I met this girl and she had this Escalade that she, like, you know, drove around campus. Which back then was, like, an Escalade. What? Like, that was a big deal. And so someone said, and then I went abroad and she met us abroad, right? She like flew, like who has money to fly? Like I'm I'm studying abroad, so I'm there, but like she just came to visit, right? To see all of us in Madrid or her other friends. And they said, oh, she's here. She came with her dad, right? Her dad flew here because her dad is like um, the premier uh, sex change operationist in all of the U.S., Wow. Right, like, like revolutionize yeah. gender reassignment surgery. So like, yeah, this, like this, this is what they do. Like they just hop private planes. And, and I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm just like thinking about my own story. And like, and I, I going to Penn, I know dozens of people like that. Like it's not my dad's a doctor. Like my dad created a method right. of surgery. Right. Um, so yeah, that's what you realize you're just like really basic. And <laughs> people, people come from like, Hardworking Americans, you know. Yeah, long money. But also, to your earlier point about privilege, right? And this is something that I've been having a conversation with a lot with people um, about my own academic background, right? Because as I always say, like, I'm a Black woman first. That My education doesn't change that. um, But that's the first thing people are going to see. But the schools that I went to and the companies that I have worked at Mm -hmm. are going to open doors for me in a way that other people that look like me, they may not get that opportunity. Same level of intelligence, same drive, but just by virtue of what I have on a resume, it's the package. Like, if, okay, if we're going to have a diverse candidate, this is the one that we want, which is a whole other issue in and of itself. But I can acknowledge that there is a privilege to that, right? Mm-hmm. And that has helped me in my career. I was groomed to be in certain environments. And I do, you know, have the the network. I've taken meetings and gone to events at, you know, the Ivy clubs in New York and what have you, the alumni club. So it is a different um, environment that sets you up. There's, if you want a job, you're going to have one, right? Because of what the resume says. Um, now I feel an obligation to open that door and create more seats at the table for people who may not have chosen, uh, had the same acumen, but didn't cho- chose choose to go to the schools that I did to build that network. Out. And and we're I, not able to for yes, reasons, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and, and I think that's something that like people feel uncomfortable saying. It does not minimize our blackness because that that is our academic and professional background at all, right? I'm acutely aware, right? <laughs> Even within yeah. corporate America, but it does open certain doors, right? Um, and I think that's important. And you know, I just commend you on on being able to acknowledge that. 
Um, That's the messed up thing. I think another thing to probably discuss is the Black identity in America is so tied to trials and tribulations that absolutely. if you know that you, you know, for example, you went to UPenn, it's kind of like, oh, you're not that Black. It's like, <laughs> or you didn't have the Black experience. It's like, hmm, <laughs> you know. Right. Being Black is a thing in itself, right? Exactly. Uh, it's like, you don't know my life. Like added on top of that, yeah. Um, but it's also understandable because, uh, you know, at, at the baseline, it's all class. It's all mm-hmm. class related. Um, in the people's history, it, make, it makes it very clear. It lays it all out. But on top of that, you have these racial iniquities that have been propagated by the system for hundreds of years. And so to ignore that is, you know, also uh, a little bit blase. So anyway. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, there are people at Penn who thought I was there because somebody needed to check the box that sure. with yeah. no thought to my own intelligence and my you know standardized test. it was none of that it was just like oh you know you're the black chick they decided to let in here you know for one reason or another which comes with its own set of issues um but so you finish up at stanford mm-hmm. and you jump headfirst into project management at that point product management uh yeah so actually you know what the story of my life is i've been given adequate uh training <laughs> for each of my roles because um even when, like, even in college, when I did my firmware engineering co-op, my parents gave like gave me access to computers, right? And so I had been coding for a long time. Um, at TI, I had done a lot of leadership at, at, in undergrad and had done firmware engineering in, internships previously, and so it was a good transition. Got trained at TI. Similar for product management, um, I didn't just jump into it full time. I did an internship um, at Google, uh, at Project Fi, now Google Fi and was under the wing of a Stanford Business School alum. Mm. So, you know, she really showed me the ropes. um, And she was like a great mentor to me. We still talk. She's still at Google in Colorado now. And uh, yeah, she really, she really set me up for success. So coming in full time, making sure that I was, I was really gunning for that hardware specific product management role. And so I already had the hardware background. And then I'd gotten really good training. during that summer. And so for full time, I think it was a good transition. So what does your role look like today as a product manager? Yeah, so I work for Google Nest, uh, whose mission is to uh, create the helpful home uh, and to take care of the people inside and outside of the home. So inside of the home and those around it. And I work in the smart displays division. So I don't know if you've heard of the Google Nest Hub, Nest Hub Max, or if you've heard of uh, the Echo Show. Just bought a house. Just bought a house. So I'm like, looking at all of those things. Oh, great! Okay. I might put you on Nest. I might put you on some Nest products afterwards. Yeah, let's see. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so I, I work primarily in the in the smart displays division. Um, and initially, I had started. I was just working on uh, hardware, but now I work on. So I work on hardware products. So I've got a few I'm working on, and then I also work on software. So what gets displayed on those uh, products and how users interact with them. Um, and then I'm also responsible for the assistant uh, responsiveness quality for uh, our speakers and displays. So, Got it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I've done a lot of research on all of the Google Nest products and Amazon Echo. Show, especially because I'm working from home. So like, yes. I'm not the biggest techie, but I'm like, you know, I want to know who's at the door by just looking at the screen personally at this point. I'm upstairs with my yeah, office. house is so big, you know. The house is so big. This is so hard to go. You know, so I, I'm becoming, I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this into a smart home eventually. Um, but, you know, you, so you have this site 
uh, PMR Black, right? And like many areas in, in tech, we are underrepresented, right? And you, you've talked about building that network and having the training and, and all of those things. Um, but to those who don't, who are like, I didn't go to a Stanford, right? I don't, I don't have the background, but this is something that I am interested in. You've created uh, a resource for them. So can you talk a bit about what uh, PMR Black is? Yeah, yeah. And actually, <clears throat> backing up, um, similar to me, like, and I write about this in the About Us uh, section of the page, that person who already knows about it, and they're just thinking, well, you know, what's the right way for me to do this? How do I need to do this? They already have the privilege in the sense that they already know someone or they have someone in their network that has shown them this, like, or even like know where to look. I, I, I'm definitely focused on helping them. I also want to help the people that don't even know about this, but would be great product managers. That is like some of the most frustrating things that I think about. Like, People that I know that are great engineers, but maybe they're in Minnesota or they're in Oklahoma or they're in Texas, and they just don't know about this path. And we could let, we could definitely benefit like the entire Bay Area, the entire world could benefit from their experiences and their direction on the future products of this world. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm like, you know, I need to let people know what this is first of all, right? Because even you, you know, earlier you, I think you said like project or pro- program management. Uh, There's actually a post I need to write. Um, just the difference between them, like what's right. the difference between project program and product management. It also basically just sounds the same. <clears throat> and uh, these kind of things are the things that the conversations we need to have. So that people are like, oh my gosh, I want this, right? Oh, I didn't, I, it's not just like putting things in a, in a spreadsheet. Like you get to make decisions about what the product looks like and how it behaves and what's the price and all these things. Like, wait a second, this sounds way cooler than I to imagine a role could be. It's basically like a, it feels like a shortcut to CEO, even though it's, it's really not. And for reasons that I specify on the website, but, um, but I, I want to make sure I address those people too. But yeah, so, so PM Wild Black, um, the reason why I created it was to make my advice and guidance more scalable to the black community for the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, MLT is big about paying it forward. And so when I was in the program, I got to ask a lot of questions of people that were MLT alum. And boy, oh boy, as soon as I graduated from the LLT program, they said, go talk to this dude. Of course. <laughs> he just got into Stanford. Oh, and he just got into Google. And oh, he's a product manager at Google. It was just like, all right. So then, you know, over the last five years, I don't know how many I've done, probably over 100 um, informational interviews, mock interviews, um, handle random calls, LinkedIn messages. And there's a bunch of people that need this information that our high potential could do the job, but they just need the guidance. Mm-hmm. And in order to have the guidance, you need to have a resource, right? And uh, for a lot of people in New York or people that are uh, in the communities where there's already a lot of PMs, um, the resource tends to be like your friends or your friend to friend, right? Oh, I know this person, they're a PM. Yeah, I'll, I'll connect you guys. You guys can just chat. Um, for people that don't have that, what are you going to do? You know, and thankfully MLT does that. So they, they make it more accessible by saying, hey, reach out to the MLT alum. But we already know there's already not a lot of black PMs. So how many people are you really gonna be able to reach out to? <laughs> I feel like like I should actually look at this up, but I feel like the majority of black PMs went through MLT. But that's another conversation. It's it's a great program. But um yeah, so I'm like, okay, well, they need a resource too. And even if it means that the information that I publish, because it's all it's all open. Anybody can go on the site and read it. But in my head, it's for the people that already have the privilege to access the connections, the friends that are PMs already, maybe it'll bring them from a 80% chance to a 90% chance of getting a job. But I think for the black community, it might bring them from 20% to 70% or 80%. Right. 
And that impact is worth the extra 10% I'm laying on uh, some of these other communities to make sure that Black people actually have a chance of making this happen. Uh, the people that aren't directly connected to me, right? Um, that aren't even in my circles for me to like broadcast that this is a thing. So that's why I created it. Right. And one thing that I definitely want to highlight is that you, you touch on on the site is, you know, I think people who haven't been exposed to these positions, they're like, oh, you know, I got the interview. Just try to go in here and kill it. And not even understanding what the interview really encompasses at these companies. Yeah. Um, and not being able to, they're preparing, but they're preparing for what they believe the interview will be and what the hiring process will be. Not even maybe knowing that it could be a lot more intense and, and require you to do think, other things besides just answer questions about yourself and your experience or behavioral interviewing. Um, and that's why I think it's so phenomenal what you've created, because we are at a deficit and a disadvantage at every level. Um, and being able to get the information, not only have the network to help you understand what the role is and what this entails, but also being as prepared as possible when, when you go in there. Because that's like, I don't even want to say it's like the best kept secret. I think if you know, you know, but like people get referred, but then they have people coaching them. Like, this is how you prepare for this, this interview. And they're going to give you this exercise. This, you, know, you need to be able to talk about this or do that. And there are a lot of people within the black community who just don't have that level of access to information. So they, they get in, they get the interview, but they, they flame out in the interview because they just didn't know how to prepare properly yeah. through no fault of their own. Yeah. There's, there's so many layers. Cause um, yes. Um, even, you know, even at a lot of the big tech companies in the Bay area, as an employee, you're not really supposed to provide like very specific guidance. So if you notice in my, my preparation thing, I try to make sure I steer clear of certain things because you want to make sure you give the guidance, but not so specific. But even, even if you're playing it by the book, the people that have more privilege can pay thousands of dollars to take these uh, mock interviews by these websites that are popping up. They'll say, hey, I'll do PM interview prep for you. Mm. Like, okay, well, who has the money to be paying for that? <laughs> it's not, you know, not, a, not everybody. Right, yeah. uh, some people are like, you know, I'm just jumping from this other job and I actually really need this next job to really pay for anything. Mm -hmm. I, I can't. You know, there's no layaway for these courses. It's like, hey, right now, you know, so um, it's just, it's inequitable in a bunch of different ways. And so you end up in these situations. And then that's if everybody's going by the book, right? Where I'm sure even if people are like X, a company, like, oh, this person used to work at, you know, Amazon, right? That person is definitely doing a full mock interview and giving you all the feedback. Right. For sure. Right. Why would you, if you don't, you're not a friend. Right. That person's not a friend. You left Amazon and you won't give them the full deal. You know, so they're definitely getting those those amazing interview, that amazing interview feedback. And then, you know, black people are kind of like, I don't really have a connection. I guess I'll read these articles and hope for the best. Right. But, which like brings me to my current frustration, which we were talking about a little bit before we started recording. And that now there's all, you know, there's this focus on DNI because companies are trying to figure out how to stand in solidarity with the black community. And there are a lot of, um, there's a, a site that was, um, I forget, I can't recall exactly who, but they put out a spreadsheet that so companies oh. were making a statement. And then so they were like saying who made a statement, but also putting their diversity numbers in a spreadsheet. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, the, the name of the site just escapes me at the moment, but the site is, is focused on black folks in tech. So like, it was like, okay, yeah, you made the statement, but let's get down to the, the black and white. That's me. I'm going to put that on the website. Yeah, absolutely. I will, I will find it as soon as we get off this. Uh, back link. This I'm yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, there's all this focus, right? On like, oh God, like we made a statement, we donated some money, but like 
people want to know why our diversity numbers are in the toilet. Um, and what you hear sort of as an explanation is, well, we try, like we try to bring in diverse candidates, but they're just not uh, rising to the occasion in interviews. or They don't have what we're looking for, you know, and we're, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. And it's the it's the inequity that you were talking about, right? It's it's not that they don't have what you're looking for um, inherently. It's just that other people have been trained and groomed and given the inside information to come in and be prepared for your interview, right? Um, and when you don't have that you're in your flying blinds, yeah, if you put that up against somebody who's had an inside track and in the appropriate network, you're going to look like you didn't rise to the occasion. Um, and that's what I, I just feel like the problem is so, so complex and people are not talking about it. The C-suite is not talking about it. HR departments at the root and not everywhere, because now there are companies who are creating feeder programs and things. But a lot of places still are looking to these same tired excuses as opposed to saying, OK, this is a, a structural problem, right? This is like systemic. And how do we how do we disrupt? We're always talking about disrupting industry, <laughs> tech, tech companies. Like how do we right. disrupt the industry when it comes to recruiting diverse talent? Um, and that's the part that I just, I'll get off my soapbox now, but that's the oh, part yeah, that I just yeah. find incredibly frustrating, listening to this narrative over and over and over again. But nobody wants to be the company that stands up and says, all right, we know what the issue is and we're going to help to solve for that. Yeah, and I, I will say that I, I find that this period has felt different mm-hmm. and the actions have been more pronounced and impactful or at least seem to be like they're going to be more impactful than previously sure right? the you know the diversity reports the 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 messaging of your where people say oh you know i'm going to we're going to release these numbers or you know we're working on these programs right um it just really feels like it never really de- delivers mm-hmm. um but i feel like there's more of a microscope on it now. And then I think things like that website is what is going to help keep things accountable. Because, you know, actually, it's similar, you know, porting this, the idea of like a company making a statement to more consumer or like just personal, interpersonal thing. You know how people post on Instagram, like that black box, right? It was like Blackout Tuesday, right? Yes. And everyone has different opinions on it, right? Uh, everyone's like, some people are like, this is great. Some people are like, you know, it was blocking out BLM content. Some people think, it's performative allyship and uh, it doesn't actually mean anything. But you know what I mean? I actually think it's great. And the reason why I think it's great is because this is the tool I'm going to use to hold you accountable. Right. If you posted that black box and voted for Donald Trump, we have a problem. If you posted that tool and didn't, or posted that, that black post and then didn't uh, donate consistently, we have a problem. Because you're literally saying, I acknowledge that this thing is real and I want to fight and, I, and I'm in solidarity with you. And then you do nothing. That's a problem. And I feel like it's the same thing with that company statement. So that page is great. Absolutely. And that's that. I have that for a list of my friends. I'm like, okay, you, 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 I'll put the black Tell me about it. Exactly. Tuesday the 13th. The irony is like people feel so good about themselves. They're like, who, you know, I'm I'm standing with you. I'm an ally. I'm I'm paying attention. Look, I got my glasses on. Look, I'm not playing around. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Um, So switching gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, yeah, so uh, I think for me, yeah, I feel like Black people have had to be, be extraordinary this entire year. I mean, <laughs> every single day, yes. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but for me, like on an ordinary day for a Black person, uh, where I had to be extraordinary was um, the week the murder of George Floyd happened. So the week the police murdered him. 
was actually the same week uh, I launched PM Wild Black. Wow. Um, it was, I feel like he got murdered on that Monday and I, I had set my PM Wild Black to get launched like on LinkedIn everywhere on Tuesday. So it was like everything just happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then of course, like at work also just overwhelmed with a lot of just regular uh, stuff <laughs> uh, that I needed to get done there. And so, you know, everyone's, you've got coronavirus. <clears throat> everyone's now dealing with another example of a symptom of systemic racism and black genocide in America. And it felt like it just, the hammer kept dropping. It was like him, then it was someone else. Then uh, there was the lynchings, right? I just felt like it, it just kept coming. And I think emotionally, mentally, you know, I think we're all just kind of bankrupt. Um, at the same time, there was so much white guilt that people were sharing PM Wild Black like crazy. There were a lot of inbound requests to help. Mm. And, you know, inbounds are always great. It's a good problem to have, but it takes energy also. So on top of the things that I was already kind of planning to do for PM Wild Black, it was like, okay, I have all these inbounds and how do I handle all this while also just trying to keep myself sane and looking at these Instagram videos of people getting hassled or getting killed or watching that, you know, police officer's knee on that guy's neck. It's like, you know, that was just a lot. And um, for me, like what ended up up, like really getting me through it was, was, you know, I was working like 7am to 1am, like every day, like Mm -hmm. two or three weeks. It was insane. And the thing that just kind of kept me going was just understanding like, why, like, why am I doing this? Um, Why did I, why did I do PML black? Why does it matter that me and my fiance, you know, she's black too. And it's like, you know, why are we day in, day out, sorry, um, why are we day in, day out, um, you know, going to work and, and making sure that we show that, you know, that you should hire the next black person that comes your way, you know? Um, right. And why am I putting all this energy into PMY Black? And it's like to fight systemic racism at every level. And I said, you know, in the future, I want to be a policymaker, but right now I can be making impact. I don't want to think, oh, I have a plan for how I'll eventually create impact. So I'm not going to do anything today. You know, I think that's kind of like a ridiculous mindset. And so for me, just getting back to the why, like why I'm trying to do this um, is really what helped me kind of get through that and be the extraordinary on an ordinary black, t- uh, ordinary day for black people in, in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it's a day is a stretch. felt like weeks. <laughs> Absolutely. And I will tell you one thing I do feel energized by is I remember at the start of my career, um, feeling like I couldn't speak out on things. Like it, I, I definitely had to play a role, mm. like a good corporate employee, right? You go in, you do the job, you laugh at the jokes that aren't funny, right? You just right. trying to assimilate and be accepted. Um, and now I feel in talking to former colleagues, friends, everybody feels really empowered to speak out and offer um, very sobering stories, experiences how they feel working in these environments, offering up their opinions and being able to provide feedback that companies, you know, in a lot of instances from what I'm hearing and in my own experience are actually listening to uh, and trying to implement. So, and that I do feel um, like the wall is coming down a bit where you don't have to hide your activism, right? Or the way, whatever way in which you, you speak out. And also the other thing that has me energized is just, I feel people feel like, 
you know, they can be an activist in different ways and we're placing equal value on that. Everybody's not going to be in the streets, right? And that's fine, but there's a role, there are roles to be served in many different ways. So what activism may look like for you, it could be different from what it looks like for someone else, right? But the the things that you're doing um, is not only providing exposure to career paths and industry, but this is how we create generational wealth. And this is how we create more privilege, right? That hasn't necessarily been, been pervasive uh, in our communities. And, and that's equally as important as taking to the streets, right? And 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 protesting in that way. So um, I feel that people on each side of the aisle, whatever your your, your brand of activism is, is realizing the importance um, of doing your part wherever you are. Uh, and that, that has helped me to feel uh, motivated on what has been a very ordinary uh, for us. <laughs> Not just day, all year, basically. Right. Um, less than ordinary, if you can call it that, at this point. Um, yeah, so actually, I, this year, uh, this or this 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 period, this is the first time I have not been out of the protests. Hmm. I've been out of every protest, and this time, where it's it's like the biggest one, you know, partially because of coronavirus. But I was like, you know what? I am way too exhausted doing all these other things. Hmm. And I like organized fundraisers with my classmates, right? We raised over $110,000, um, you know, doing stuff at work, just broad education <laughs> of all the people that suddenly now want to understand, mm-hmm. even though there were countless other episodes, right? right. Where somebody didn't click. Um, but I guess when you can't go to brunch, you have to actually face what's going on in your country, right? Um, and, you know, just thinking through like all those things you kind of have to do. Um, you know, for me, I, I looked down and I saw, it was, I live in San Jose. And so I saw a whole bunch of San Jose state university students, you know, walking and protesting. I'm like, great. Y'all can actually do take this load off for me. (laughs) So I can go do this other work (laughs) because thankfully there's a whole bunch of white people out there fighting with the cops. So I don't have to, you know, cause I was like, you know, you'd lay down like in what, uh, central station, Mm -hmm. right. I I can't breathe. Right. With Garner. It was like, you know, this time I'm like, this is what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm, older now, right? I'm 29. I'm in these positions and places where I have access to privilege and people that have privilege. And what can I do with that? Instead of spend three hours down there and feel satisfied with myself, I'm going to go over here and hold people accountable. Like open make- up your checkbook, like put your exactly. money where your mouth is. Yes. Exactly. And I'm not in college where I'm asking my college friends to put in $10. I'm like, <laughs> no, we go in hundreds, thousands. Like this is what's happening, you know? So yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, as someone who has forced the hand on a lot of checks to be written in the last few weeks. I am with Amen. you there. Like, let's, get, let's get these corporate dollars where they where they need That's to belong. Um, <laughs> so what's next? What's on the horizon for you? What's next? Um, well, the first thing that comes to my mind is going to get married. <laughs> but that's like... Uh, a little under a year from now. So I guess that's a while. And we'll see how coronavirus plays into that. But Good next step, though. Um, yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Um, honestly, so... Like I said, building community. So I also build this uh, Black Surfer community. Um, so for me, I think I have a lot going on, and I want to deliver at work. I want to grow PMO Black and get it out to more people, and I want to grow the Black Surfer community. Um, right now, we have like on that on that side, like we have a bunch of locations where there's a bunch of Black Surfers already, and I'm just trying to grow those communities and uh, allow like enable them to interact with each other. And even with, with COVID, like how can I uh, create more feelings of in-group and belonging um, than exclusion and feeling like the alien in the lineup and out in the water. So um, I'm a big fan of like 
you know, similar to your podcast, like you start something, don't like start something and stop it. You haven't really done anything. You got to keep going. You have to build up, right? Most things aren't, you know, you turn it on and it's like, whoa, it's amazing, right? And suddenly you've done your, your job and you can move on. A lot of things just take time. So I started PML Black a month and a half ago. So <laughs> much, much more work to be done. Well, listen, I'm very excited about where that could go. Um, and I'm all about exposure to careers uh, and us moving away from the trial and tribulation narrative. Uh, I, I want us to have investment portfolios and really fat retirement accounts and equi- equity and all the things and, and building the the Rolodex to say, oh, I am going out as a founder now. And let me call my former classmates, my former colleagues and ask them if they want to get in on this. And who do I know at a hedge fund who might be willing to write a check? Um, so I'm, I am all for it. I'm very excited about what you're building. Um, and that policy piece, I know it's coming as well, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, so definitely LinkedIn, Kaita Johnson, K-A-Y-I-I-T-A, last name Johnson. Of course, pmwildblack.com. <laughs> and uh, on Instagram, uh, definitely black.surfers. Um, I post a little bit about actually like how systemic racism pertains to surfing as well. So thinking about like localism, uh, beachfront communities tend to be communities, uh, uh, white communities. And why is that? And how can we uh, overcome it or make it more equitable? So those are some places. For sure. That's great. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Uh, an, alpha, <laughs> an, alpha, an alpha delivers again. You know, we've had several on the show. So. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> you, guys, you guys generally uh, bring it for sure. Uh, but to our audience, thanks so much for tuning in. If you have interest in the product management space or just learning more about Kaita and his work, please check out pmwildblack.com. And if you're into surfing or just thinking about getting into to surfing, <laughs> um, I personally have a bit of a phobia of open bodies of water. We can talk about that offline. Uh, for those of you who are looking into that, please check him out online as well, as well on IG. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER. 